The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So happy to join us today. We have got a great guest that I'm very excited to bring to you today. She's an author, she is an activist, and she is an incredibly intelligent woman, and I'm just so excited to have her on the show. Her name is Osprey Oriel Lake. She's the author of a brand new book that I thoroughly enjoyed. It's called Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. In addition to being an author and an artist, she's also the director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus. And this is an international uh, and globally focused organization that we're going to talk with Osprey about today. Um, Osprey, welcome to Go Green Radio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd just like to start off with kind of a general question. Talk to us about your book, Uprisings for the Earth. What was it that inspired you to write it? Well, I'm very interested in how we can look both at the immediate needs of our environmental and social crises and begin to address them at a deeper level. And a lot of my day job, let's say, is involved with that kind of work, as you mentioned, with the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus directly dealing with issues. But in my book, I wanted to look at a very deep systemic approach to a lot of the problems of our time. And the thesis really is that we um, are a society and a culture very disconnected from the natural world. And the entire focus of the book is how a culture or civilization that's bereft really of this connection to nature will not be sustainable and what we can do about it. So the different stories and examples in the book uh, really describe different ways that we can reconnect ourselves with the natural rhythms of the earth because ultimately we, we need to become a very sustainable people and that means being very in very good stead with the natural world and the ecosystem. And so there's a lot of explorations in the book about how to go about seeing that and getting involved and viewing it from many different perspectives. Well, and I know that even people who don't consider themselves environmentalists understand that we have, you know, a connection to the earth. We need the natural resources that nature provides in order to survive. And your book brings about some very positive and very doable um, solutions to reconnecting with that truth. Now, I love one of the quotes uh, from your book that you mentioned, and it, it says this, we live in a time that requires tremendous courage to recognize the peril of our existence while simultaneously generating the hope and innovation needed in order to fundamentally change our course. And that really is the challenge for a lot of us who are involved in uh, whether you want to call it 
the environmental movement or the green industry, however you want to dimension it. Osprey, how do you personally manage to balance those two realities? That's such a good question, and and um, I often, uh, when I begin some different sessions, when I'm teaching or giving presentations, I, I find myself often talking about this topic of courage and how it takes a lot of courage to face something as daunting and potentially catastrophic as a lot of these uh, environmental challenges that we face right now. And I think I just want to begin by saying that it, it, I think it's important to be very honest about what's at stake. Uh, I think many of us realize that we live in a very remarkable time in which we're truly at a crossroads as a species and a planet. And that's uh, a lot to contend with. And in many ways, it's a time of, of terrific peril. But at the same time, I, I truly believe it's a time of great promise. So I just want to mention a few things because I think it's important to put this question and this quote that you brought forth into context, which is, you know, as an example, we can just see what's happened um, last summer in Russia with the devastation of crops that's now affecting grain exports around the world that came from tremendous scorching heat and drought there. And then we saw, you know, last summer the torrential rains and river flooding in Pakistan that put 20% of Pakistan underwater. And we could go on and on to flooding in Australia and Brazil. So um, these are just some of the challenges we're looking at with the climate, but there are many other crises with the economic crisis, deforestation, the loss of indigenous cultures, the loss of species. And I think the point is very clear that we're long past time that we respect the natural laws of our Earth and immediately start living within the caring capacity of our planet. And with that said, I think within the context of these mounting perils, a big part of the promise that I find and draw from every day really rests in the hands and the hearts of minds of people around the world who are actively doing something about many of these social environmental crises. And this is where I really gather a lot of hope from these individuals and organizations and their stories and really change makers on the front lines improving their communities. And I really like the phrase uh, that environmentalist David Orr uses, which is that hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And I think that's mm-hmm. so appropriate for right now because, you know, mm-hmm. action is one of the most powerful amplifiers of hope. And now, if ever, it's really time to engage in the things that we're passionate about. And I think that's what helps turn this from a time of, of, of just feeling just the weight of the moment into opportunity for ourselves is that actual engagement. Well, I agree with you. And one of the really great things about the time in which we live is that we have so many new outlets to share those stories of action and therefore multiply the hope. I mean, we have so many social media outlets now and people are sharing their stories in new ways that weren't possible even 10 years ago. And so when we, you know, we talk about gleaning hope from the masses and these testimonials and stories that give us hope, we have new ways to share them. And, and your book is another great way to share it. And I really encourage folks to get out and and to purchase the book because it's, it is very hopeful. It, 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 on the one hand, as you say, Osprey, describes the peril that we're in. Of course, we have to recognize that. Um, but it also gives us so many um, stories, beautiful stories, um, that can give us motivation and, and hope. Now, you mention, and I, I really agree with what you say here, that we need a revolution in our educational institutions. And of course, you know, as the founder of one of the largest environmental education programs in the world, the Go Green Initiative, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'd love for you to describe to our audience 
what your vision is of the, of the changes that we need to have in our educational system. Share with that with us. Sure, and I also just want to say I love your program, the Go Green Initiative, and I just want to take this minute to congratulate you on it because it's so important, and I want to just thank you for that work. Thank um, you. Um, what I'm exploring really in education is how we can revitalize a deeper relationship with our living earth, both from a sensate experience of connecting with the land, but also how we tell our cultural narrative in relationship to the natural world. And as many of us are learning right now, over half the world's population lives in urban environments, mostly disconnected from our Earth. So that's a big challenge. And I'm asking questions about how can we care for the rivers, the forests, the mountains, and other species when we really have no direct connection with them? And how do we live in good relationship to the natural laws when we have so little experience of them? And, you know, so often right now, many people will watch, as an example, a nature special on television about the ocean, which I think is terrific. We have these educational programs to see, but it really can't replace the actual sensate experience of actually going to the ocean and mm-hmm. uh, having the wind in our faces and the knowledge that comes directly from seeing smelling, feeling, experience the wildlife there. It's very different in how that affects us and then how we will actually care for those places and have a response with that direct experience. Um, Seeing something on television is really an abstraction of the real thing. It's not the same. And um, I think we really need to change our educational system so that we have our young people, but people of all ages, directly be in nature more often And I think it's very interesting, um, something that environmentalist Paul Hawkins cites, uh, this example that if you are asking children or adults to name hundreds of logos or brand names, you know, from our commercial products, they really have no problem identifying these logos and brand names and naming what they are. Mm-hmm. But if you ask them to just go outside the front door of their home, right there in their own neighborhood, they can't name 10 species of plants, just 10. Or, you know, and I think that this really points out a problem that um, we don't know the birds right, south, right outside our window. We don't know the trees right in our own front yard. And I, I think it really says something about our deep need to connect with our place, our own neighborhoods, our own region. And what's exciting is it's something we can actually do something about. We can actually learn these things and um, really become situated in place, which is a beginning point. I like very much the term eco-literacy, which is, you know, really learning about our bioregion, the the plants and animals that we live with. Where does Mm -hmm. our food come from? Where is our energy coming from? Where does our water come from? And I think that a key to this new education is really developing this essential relationship with our environment. And I think programs like you're involved in, I love also one in Berkeley, California, called Smart by Nature. Where yep, they I'm familiar children. with them. Love yep. them, actually. Yep. They're, they're so wonderful. You know, they have mm-hmm. all the kids growing their own food in a garden, yep. and they eat that food in the cafeteria, and then they uh, have composting. And again, just how mm-hmm. can we directly engage, I think, is one of the most important parts of, of this new education. Well, I agree with you. And, and similarly, kind of the flip side of that coin is um, it's hard for kids to appreciate things like a landfill, 
um, until they smell it. <laughs> you can watch videos about it in your classroom. But similarly, when we take children to see the other side of our, you know, of our way of living and let them get that little gag reflex going when they smell a landfill and they see, oh my gosh, that looks like something I threw away yesterday. That's another way of teaching kids and, and adults as well. I mean, I really feel like this is something that, that adults can experience and appreciate as well. Seeing the ramifications of our actions from the front end and the back end. You know, here's what we have to preserve, the beautiful natural resources, and here's what happens when we fall down on the job. And I think that, you know, both of those, I think it's important for us to understand the systems that we rely upon. We take so much for granted uh, that we get clean tap water when we turn it on, you know, in the faucet or the drinking fountain. But what really is that system? Same thing with energy, with our waste. Um, so I, I, I couldn't agree with you more um, on that, that precept, Osprey, that we need to bring children and adults into a greater relationship, a sensory relationship with our natural systems and our man-made systems and how they affect our health, the environment, other species, etc. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be talking more with Osprey about some of the projects that she's been involved with, but also more about her book, which is called Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture, with nature, and I encourage you on this commercial break to take a look, Google the book, and uh, we'll find out more about how to get a hold of it after the break. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you. Every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa provides homeowners and investors eager to invest well in real estate the knowledge, resources, and tools necessary to generate significant wealth. Our focus will be the paradigm. Live where you want. Invest where it makes the most sense. Listen live to the brightest minds in real estate investment every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. That's Income Property Investment Talk with Peter Mosca and Dean Issa, where America learns to invest. 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today we are joined by a guest that has really given us a gift with her new book. Uh, her name is Osprey Oriel Lake, if you're just joining us, and her book is called Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. Before we launch into this segment of the show, Osprey, I'd love for you to tell our listeners where they can get a hold of your book. Uh, they can get a hold of it on Amazon.com. That's the simplest way to get it. And, of course, through the publishers, which is White Cloud Press. But it's out in three formats, in uh, hardcover, paperback, and I'm really happy on Kindle. So oh, all cool. of that is available on Amazon. Great. Well, if you go out to Amazon.com um, and plug in Uprisings for the Earth, that's where you can get a hold of this beautiful piece of literature. I'm really excited about it. Osprey, I love the concept that you introduce in your book called Earth Etiquette. It's a powerful idea, and I'd love for you to share it with our listeners. Uh, sure. Thank you, Jill. Um, I think what I'd like to do is just briefly read a few paragraphs from my book because it says it so succinctly, and I think it'll give people a chance to really delve into the depth of, of what I'm really describing here. Um, what would an earth etiquette look like? Many people all over the world are now asking this sort of question in a variety of ways. For instance, what if human communities and other than human communities shared the same rights and protections? What if we understood that it is no longer possible to separate human rights and environmental concerns like the right to clean water? What if we stopped forcing rivers and creeks into underground pipes for real estate developments and instead let them run freely so we could be uh, having beautiful and functional waterways in our cities? What if we stopped using words like resources or commodities, which only distances us further from the intimacy with our living earth when we speak about our forests, waters, and minerals. Um, The exploration of an earth etiquette is a complement to the brilliant land ethics, philosophies, and practices expressed over the past years by ecologists and environmentalists like Aldo Leopold, Vandana Shiva, John Muir, Maria Tchikosova, and many others. And it's offered here as a complement to legal action on behalf of both the environment and social issues. And I don't want to continue to read, but the idea here is that um, we really need to create a new narrative and a new uh, sense of essential well-being that's appropriate and arises from our innate sense of right living with the earth. And it's really addressing that we need to uh, end outmoded and dangerous beliefs in a mechanistic view of the natural world that says that the earth is nothing more than dead matter and that nature is to be dominated, exploited, and controlled. And really it's instead looking at engaging the world uh, and seeing that we need a regenerated worldview that remembers its origins in a living universe and that we're really all part of the natural systems. And then I go into a lot of detail about how we can really live in a respectful manner. And I, I think that 
many people are beginning to engage in these ideas in a variety of ways. And I think it's also important to recognize indigenous people who have lived for thousands and thousands of years in a very intact and respectful way with a good ecological footprint. So they're also, I think, a really important model for us. And, and it's important to understand that they have a lot to offer us, as well as a lot of the new sciences that we're looking at that can really help us to uh, live with the natural systems and within the natural caring capacity of our earth. And that's what I'm looking at with an earth etiquette, this respectful living that comes from within us, but also in how we're treating other people as well as other species. Well, and, and what's so central to this whole concept is the idea that, you know, the wind blows and the water flows. And what you do to the earth in one area can affect downstream. And, and we've seen instance after instance of this fact. I mean, when you spill oil in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it doesn't just stay right around the spill site. Um, when you contaminate water upstream, it flows downstream. You know, if there's air pollution that, you know, emanates from one location uh, into the atmosphere, it blows over, you know, other regions. And so, um, whether you want to call it earth etiquette or just good manners, I mean, our actions affect others, and it's poor manners, whether it's at a party, whether it's, you know, anywhere where you would normally think of, of etiquette, any kind of social gathering, to have an ill effect on others. Uh, the same is true on our environmental impact, and I think that's, that's something that our, our society used to take into account, consideration for others. Um, so whether, you know, you're a person who considers other species or whether you're a person who just considers other human beings, um, this idea of being respectful of your impact on others, you know, really ought to be a, a core principle. So I really like what you have put forward here. And I'm hoping that people who hear this and people who read it in your book will really give it some thought. What impact am I having on others when I, you know, flush my pharmaceuticals down the toilet or when I, you know, release uh detergent into the wastewater system, you know, and uh, when I wash my car in the driveway rather than taking it to a car wash that recycles the water. I mean, there's just so many ways that we could be more considerate of the downstream effect of our actions. And I really think that's, you know, that that's really worth a lot of discussion and, and meditation. You mentioned a new science that's emerging. Uh, you mentioned this in your book called Biomimicry, and, and I think that's fascinating. Tell us more about that. Uh, yes, I really love the, the work of um, Biomimicry, which is based entirely upon learning from nature as model. And Biomimicry is a discipline that studies nature's design and then emulates these processes and forms for sustainable solutions to human problems. And, you know, it's not the same as, like, looking to the natural resources and saying, how can we extract them or even how can we extract them better and what we can do with them. And it's not even utilizing resources in an efficient way or recycling it. It, it, it even encompasses something beyond that, which is... Um, uh, what they call uh, really looking at these designs in a way that emulates what nature does that's regenerative and life-enhancing. So let me give you an example um, that I use in my book, which is uh, there were these architects working to build a very large building complex in Zimbabwe. 
And in that region, as some of you might know, that the um, temperature fluctuates quite a bit throughout the day with extreme heat and then extreme cold at night. And what these architects did is they went into the region and they studied the land there and they found these very large termite mounds, which are quite big, made out of, constructed out of mud. And uh, they found that these termite mounds are self-cooling. And the way the tunnels move in and out of the termite mines and the air flows, it's self-cooling. And so they actually designed the ventilation system of this building complex after these termite mounds. And, it, and the result is quite dramatic, which is that this building complex uses 90% less energy for its ventilation than conventional buildings the exact same size. And so this is really the work of biomimics, is seeing how nature goes about doing things uh, that has been, you know, Mother Earth has been designing for, mm-hmm. you know, 4.5 billion years and mm-hmm. looking at the sophistication of that design that's life-enhancing and regenerative. Um, and, and I do want to mention the biologist who really named this emerging science. Her name is Janine Benyus, and I really love her work. And she has a great saying uh, which is the more that our world functions like the natural world, the more likely we are to endure on this home that is ours, but not ours alone. And again, mm-hmm. it goes back to this whole idea of earth etiquette that we're talking about, which is having this respect for the sophistication of a lot of these um, designs and ecological systems that have been long enduring and respecting them and learning from them and learning to live with them so we don't cause harm and damage, but actually uh, our positive effect mutually enhancing to the natural systems. And I think biomimicry is a really excellent example of how we can go about doing that. That's fascinating. Now, where is she located physically? I mean, where if our listeners say, ooh, I'd like to learn more about that science, uh, where can they go to, to learn more? Uh, she has an institute called the Biomimicry Institute, which is in Montana, and you mm-hmm. can Google that and find that. And she has a book out also called Biomimicry, and she's just a fascinating person, absolutely brilliant. And there's many, many, many uh, examples of the use of biomimicry that are now being looked at, even in terms of how to design cities that um, are ecologically efficient, um, new types of uh, solar uh, uh, different types of solar equipment, different kinds of renewable energies, all utilizing this biomimicry model. So I think, you know, it's mm-hmm. definitely worth exploring. That's fascinating. You know, we have just a couple minutes left before we take a quick break, but I'd like for you to talk about some of the things that you discuss in the book, which are some purposeful encounters with nature that you've engaged in. And I like this quote that you said, I I want to know where I walk and who has walked before me. Otherwise, I will be just another tourist in my own dwelling place, never truly at home. Talk with our listeners about this connection between environmental protection and knowing the history of the people and the land where you live. Yeah, I think part of changing how we are living is getting very present with the places we live, both the natural history and the cultural history. And I think the question is, how can we respect the land when we don't know its history? How can we feel truly at home in a place when we don't know its stories? And um, in one of my chapters, which I call of redwoods and whales, 
Jewel Baskets and Roots. I share my exploration of growing up in Mendocino County because I really wanted to deeply get into this topic because I think part of changing our destructive presence on Earth will come from living well in relationship to the places where we come from. And again, I'm looking at this concept of getting to know the story of the land and our participation in it will also help us be responsible about living there well. So I think we really need to understand where we're from, no different than if you want to have a good relationship with one of your friends, you eventually need to hear their history and their story, what they like, what they don't like, and then you can really have a good relationship with them. And I think we need to apply that principle to where we live. I agree. Beautifully said. Well, we have got to take a quick commercial break, folks, but we'll be right back. More with Osprey and her beautiful book, Uprisings for the Earth. We're also going to be talking to her about her role as the director of the Women's Earth Earth and Climate Caucus. My apologies. And we will be right back with more Go Green Radio in just a moment. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, folks. I want to give a big, big shout out, as I always do, to my tweeps who are tweeting me as we speak. If you want to get involved in the conversation and send me some tweets as we go along with Go Green Radio, you can do that. My handle is at Jill Buck. That's at J-I-L-L-B-U-C-K. Tweet me anytime. I'm constantly on Twitter. And for those of you who are rabid listeners you love go green radio and you're listening out there maybe you've just joined us and you missed the first part of the show don't worry because we replay this very same show on tuesday next tuesday at 9 a.m pacific noon eastern time on the green living network of voice america you're listening to us right now on the variety channel but if you go to voiceamerica.com you can hear a replay of this show next tuesday on the Green Living Channel, you'll find the button on the Voice America main page. Well, we are here with Osprey Oriel Lake, author of Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. The book is available in hardback, uh, softback, and the Kindle format if you go to Amazon.com. And I know that you'll enjoy it. I devoured it, and I thought it was a very inspiring um, and very motivating piece of literature. I truly appreciated it. Osprey, last week I had a guest on Go Green Radio that a lot of folks are big fans of and big fans of his family. That was Philippe Cousteau. He is, of Mm. course, Captain Jacques Cousteau's grandson. And we talked about water. And we also talked about the role that citizen journalism can play in educating the public about water. In your mind, Osprey, what do we need to do to educate the American public about the delicate status of our water supply? How do we encourage people to care about this issue when currently, you know, Americans can get clean water whenever they want it? How do we do that? How do we educate people about the, the looming mm. crisis? Yes, it's, it's such an important question. Um, yeah, I agree with you. You know, so many people in America, uh, do not know where their water comes from, as an example. And I think that's part of the lack in the education is, you know, we do just turn on our faucets and there's the water. And when I talk to people about where their water comes from, so many people don't know. And I think we need to change this in our school systems. Both children and adults really need to see the whole system and understand it more. I think that's one of the first things we can do. And I think the other thing is that people are very uh, unaware that at the rate we are using the water, that it won't last. Um, I was just reading a U.S. government study that says that at least 36 states are expected to face water shortages just within the next five years. Mm. And, you know, right now available fresh water supplies are dwindling across the country due to rising temperatures and droughts and, you know, the increase of sprawl from our cities a growing population, inefficient use of water. So, you know, we're seeing these water problems increasing. We know that the Great Lakes are shrinking. So I think we need to talk about this critical issue and and have it be something that is in more of our daily dialogue. And I think also people are beginning to realize who are who are aware of these water issues that now when we're talking about water, we're also talking about 
the climate issue and global warming. We're talking about water, whether it's too much of it through flooding or too little of it from droughts and evaporation. So I think we also need to start linking these different issues and, and tying them in together. But I think it's very challenging because still in so many parts of the country, you can yeah, just turn on your water. Um, but I think the, the cost of water is going to go up and that's going to get people's attention. And then briefly, I want to mention uh, sort of on a creative note, as you know, I'm also an artist and mm-hmm. um, I've been thinking about this question you've asked. So what I'm working with is something called the Drop of Water, Drop of Life Project. And the idea for this artwork is to create uh, a water fountain for metropolitan city areas that that really bring people's attention to the local watershed and create a way to revitalize a personal connection to water. And the design for these fountains is that each of them is one of a kind and region-specific that's designed from a water crystal. And um, what I'm doing is I'm going up into a local watershed, and here I'm living in Marin County in California, and this is the pilot project. And what I've done is I've collected a water sample, and then with a water scientist have grown a crystal directly from that water sample. So it's very specific to this region. And then Mm -hmm. from that crystal, rendering a drawing that I'm then having be an exact replica of that crystal and making a very large fountain. So people can see what the water coming from their tap looks like in a crystallized form and really saying, you know, this is what your water looks like. And then around the fountain, there's plaques describing the watershed with some images and stories about the watershed. And then also what needs to happen to protect that watershed. And I think this whole idea of that we live in a water basin, that we live in a watershed is something we really need to incorporate. And so I'm using, you know, art as a way to do this, given that people are not necessarily at the moment feeling the emergency in many parts of the country, starting, you know, how can we make it interesting for people to learn and engage in their local watershed through art and water awareness projects? That is really cool, Osprey. I mean, I am excited to see that. Um, I think that's a beautiful way to engage people. It's not scary. It's actually... um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful way to, to get people's attention. I love that idea. Um, you know, it, speaking of water, speaking of droughts and extreme weather, you know, we're seeing some pretty wild things going on in world politics, especially in the Middle East right now. And, of course, you know, there are many contributing factors to the uprisings that we're witnessing in various countries. But to be honest, you know, you mentioned this earlier in the show. Last summer, when Russia experienced so much drought and they announced that they were not going to be exporting wheat, I began to worry about Egypt even then because they get most of their grain from Russia. And when food staples become scarce or expensive, I mean, that can really push people from the point of being just miserably poor to outraged and outraged enough to revolt. It's impossible for us to know for sure, you know, how climate change could affect the geopolitical landscape. But what do you think from your observations and from your interactions with with opinion leaders around the world, what do you think are some reasonable and foreseeable outcomes to the extreme weather that we are beginning to see? Yeah, I I think it's very serious, and I think right now the connection between peace and uh, national security, and when I'm talking about national security, I mean for every country, and climate change could not be clearer as we look to the issues that you're speaking of, of food security, 
uh, droughts, water scarcity, um, and also as well as the growing number of climate refugees that we're already seeing. I mean, people mm-hmm. already in, in Africa and different parts of the world are being displaced because of serious droughts. So there are actually climate refugees as we speak. So it makes sense that when we talk about international peace and countries being stable, that we also look directly at environmental issues. And I think that it's a very important point. And I know, as an example, I was um, at COP16 in Cancun for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And there were uh, military officials from the United States there speaking to different people. And I had a chance to speak to a few of them concerning the fact that they are really, our own military sees this fact of climate change as a national security issue and, and is mm-hmm. approaching it in that way. And I think that's something very important to understand. Um, mm-hmm. I think the other thing that is interesting that there are some studies now that are stating that for every one meter of sea level rise, which is not that much, one meter, there will be 100 million climate refugees. Mm. You start thinking about, oh my goodness, you know, where do these people go? Mm-hmm. Um, that also brings forth this whole idea of national security. So, yes, I think that there's going to be a, a connection that we see more and more with this extreme weather and what this means for stability in different countries. You know, and w- what we're talking about here is going to require a, a united front, you know, of people really coming together to, you know, to, to address these issues. You know, in, in America, this isn't happening in a lot of other countries in the world, but in America, we have these different camps, some people who believe that climate change is humans' fault and some people who don't. Do you think it's necessary for people to believe that humans are to blame for climate change in order to get them engaged in the necessary action to, you know, to, to address you know, the human elements and the human effect that we're going to be experiencing as a result of climate change? Or or do you think there's some way to unite everybody um, to to engage in in what we need to be doing to address these issues? Well, I think people everywhere, and, and from whatever stance they have from many different backgrounds, we all want our children to have good food to eat, We want them to have clean water. We want them to have clean air. And we want them to have thriving communities and good jobs. So I think this is where we can all get behind one unified voice. I think that the argument is being made across many sectors, from business to government to environmentalists to grassroots organizers, um, that, as an example, investing in a green economy is good for everyone and good for the environment. Um, Right. You know, I think that people do understand that uh, wherever they land on this question, that, you know, that we are coming to the end of uh, fossil fuels, cheap fossil fuels, and that we need to transition from a fossil fuel economy to a new clean energy economy. And I think the sooner that we do this, obviously, the better it is all the way around. And um, this is something we can all understand. And I agree. um, I also think that we all are interested in our country prospering. And right now, as we look to China and Germany, um, just as an example, we all can see statistically they're ahead of us in terms of developing renewable energy technologies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially in the area of solar and wind. So I think it really behooves us all to get on this uh, transition 
And I think this is something that, that we can all mobilize behind. I agree with you, Osprey. Well said. Well, folks, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but we will be right back after this with more from Osprey Oriel Lake, author of Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. Don't go away. More Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Interstate Sportsman Talk Radio Show brings two well-known outdoorsmen to the Voice America Network with hunting and fishing info news. Talking about everything from new sporting gear, places to hunt and fish, and getting more from your recreation time. Join host Brock Ray and Don Kirk Friday mornings at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 Eastern, for the Interstate Sportsman on the Voice America channel. Go inside the world of PR with PR Insider, hosted by public relations expert Maureen Kettis. Maureen will speak to the world's highest profile PR pros from the fields of marketing, advertising, and sales. And PR Insider will feature renowned members of the media as special guests. Maureen will give you a VIP access pass, including tips and tricks to take your business to the next level. PR Insider with Maureen Kettis, sponsored by Cision, us.cision.com. Listen every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Network. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are joined today by Osprey Oriel Lake. And as I've mentioned in previous sections, she has got a book out that I know you will enjoy. It's called Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. You can find it on Amazon.com. So do check that out. But in addition to being the author of this book, she is the director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus. And that is something that I want to go straight to, Osprey. What role do you believe women play in generating what you call the collective will to move our society toward a post-carbon world? Well, over the past years, many experts from scientists to business leaders 
tell us that we already have all the technology we need to transition from a fossil fuel economy to a new clean energy economy. So I think that's you know, really good news when we really think about that. We have the renewable technologies from solar, wind to geothermal and others, and we have the knowledge of smart grids and what we required to uh, really make this transition off of fossil fuels. So I think that's the promising news. However, when these same experts are speaking, they say what's really missing is not these technologies, but what is missing is the collective will to make this transition. And I think a critical component I don't think it's the only one, but a very important one in generating this collective will is the empowerment of women. And I want to say why I think that um, and just give some examples. Uh, United Nations studies, as well as others, show us that whether you're in developing countries or in the developed world, when women and girls are empowered, some really important things happen that are important to the environment, important to society. Um, Populations stabilize, economies improve, and the education and health of children improve. Um, women are a major factor in peacemaking, and in regard to the environment, they're finding that they're the main recyclers in the home. And also women worldwide as a constituency have so much to offer that I think is very untapped. And I'll just speak for the United States right now. Um, right now, over half of the wealth is in the hands of women, and women decide 80% that's such a big number. 80% of all consumer purchases are being decided by women. So one mm-hmm. of the campaigns that we're looking at in the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus is working on how to mobilize that 80% towards demanding from the market clean energy, as an example. Um, women vote more in this country. They volunteer more. And they give to more charities than men do. Um, and I, having said that, I do want to say we also work with men. They are part of our organization, and, mm-hmm. and really our viewpoint is it's really not about uh, putting men down so much as it's about lifting women up and working together for all these reasons I'm stating. It's really showing that women are really key factor that um, is something we can tap into that I think will be very effective in the kind of changes we're wanting to see. Well, and and what you're talking about is something that we've discussed many times on this show, and that is the power of the purse. If we already know that 80% of consumer choices are made by women, if we can expose those consumers to simple ways of shifting their power, that power of the purse toward sustainable choices, um, towards greener choices, um, then we win. I mean, you cannot stay in business in a uh, environmentally irresponsible business model if that power of the purse, if 80% of consumers choose a rival product or rival service that is sustainable. I mean, it's purely a bottom line issue. And sometimes the only ingredient that's missing to engage, especially in this country, in the United States, to engage those consumers in uh, better practices or, or better applications of their consumerism is simply information. Um, and I think there's just so many ways now to get that information out there. Even if it's an app on my iPhone uh, that I can look at while I'm grocery shopping that says, you know, between these products, this one uses the least amount of water or energy um, and it performs just as well as these other products. You know, I, mean, I think those kinds of uh, tools can certainly make a huge difference. I'd love for you to talk about some of the women who are in developing countries right now 
who are already being adversely affected by climate change. And there's many ways that that can happen. Tell us some of their stories and, and maybe even how we can help them. Uh, yeah, in the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, uh, one of our initiatives is very much working with women in other countries. And it, it definitely is something that has affected me very personally to, to understand some of the stories of what these women are going through. Um, you know, just as, as one example, um, a woman that we're working with in um, Cameroon, she's a geologist from the area, and she's been telling me, because we communicate quite a bit, about how the women are actually having to walk further and further for water because mm. of the severe droughts. And then on the other end of the spectrum, they have these huge floods that destroy the crops, and then they go back to this heavy cycle of drought. And so they're just struggling to survive and have food for their families, water for their families. And um, I think this is something that the more we can actually see the face of those being impacted, it can also affect our behavior here in the United States. And I think it's really important that we do that. And uh, one of the things uh, that we're working with um, right now, um, we work in Africa and Nepal um, most immediately, is um, to create centers where women who are so much core to the community and upfront with the children and caring for their families, how to do things like learn very practical still skills for adaptation and mitigation with climate change. So we do these trainings where women can come and learn how to harvest rainwater, as an example, and build holding tanks for the water so they're not spending all day collecting water, which decreases mm -hmm. their time for other activities they need to do. Um, also, how to have different types of cooking stoves so that they're not going out and cutting down the last of their forests for their home cooking fires to cook their food. So a lot of the work that we do is very, very practical, hands-on, and I think that's important that we understand that at a grassroots level, so many of these changes are happening at a survival level, and, and it's good to be educated about these things and understand that while we might not be experiencing this here in the United States, it's really important to understand what other people are already experiencing in other countries. Um, right. And also areas that are low-lying where the sea level rise is already happening and people are having to move off their islands because sea level is destroying uh, their homes already and their crops. So uh, I think that's a big story that needs to be brought here to the U.S. I think you're right. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a huge influx, I hope, of Go Green Radio listeners who say, you know what, I want to help. I want to get involved. Um, how, do, how can they do that? What's a website they can go to or, or how can they get involved in helping your organization do what it's doing? Well, um, our I'm going to give you uh, our our website that can take you to the Women's Caucus. It's uh, mm -hmm. uh, called uh, World Forum, so it's www.oneworldworldforum.com, and also direct them to my own website to hear more of the whole journey of what our Women's Caucus is involved in, and that's www, and then my name, ospreyoriolake.com. And um, we're working with a lot of initiatives, and we welcome people to come and participate in them because we're, we're very involved um, in other countries as well as here in the United States with different projects. And what we're finding in the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus is depending which country we're operating in, we really need to focus on the story that makes sense for people in that community. So right. the, the uh, Women's Caucus is really providing a platform for national 
and international conversations and actions around climate issues. And we're really solutions-based. And mm-hmm. we're working with women leaders from grassroots organizations, women who are policymakers, business and science, and really having this very integrated approach so that we can welcome a wide spectrum of expertise. That's wonderful work. Well, Osprey, I am so thrilled that you could join us today on Go Green Radio. And thank you to all our listeners who joined us today. We are going to be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week and go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.